Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of In The Zone. I'm Giancarlo Alino, joined of course, as usual, Anthony Piniello, Chris Martelli. Guys, we're in episode 88 and kind of forgot about this the last few weeks, but we'll kick it off with this. The Hockey Hall of Fame inductees were announced. A surprising list of names. Uh, Marion Hossa, Jerome McGinley, Kevin Lowe, Kim St. Pierre, Doug Wilson, so, uh, guys, what are your thoughts on this? And uh, I guess what names jump out at uh, you as a surprise? Right off the bat, Jerome McGinley. Come on. Canadian legend. 600 goals. Um, wasn't fortunate to get that Stanley Cup, but, uh, yeah, with my time growing up, Jerome McGinley really stands out there with the Flames. Um, not really disappointed here. Happy for everyone involved. Uh, but, yeah, shout out to Iggy. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to go with Iggy as well. He's probably the front runner. He's the guy that like uh, Pinello just said, he never unfortunately never won a cup even though he was a part of two really solid uh Boston and Pittsburgh teams late in his career. He couldn't get, you know, he couldn't get the cup, but you know, it is unfortunate, but again, he had 98 points in his career year in 07. He's a two-time 50-goal scorer, 625 goals. Uh, this guy was also just an unreal leader for Calgary, put them basically back on the map, 525 goals for Calgary alone. So that's just marvelous. He's a Rocket Richard winner, an Art Ross winner, a Ted Lindsay winner, six-time All-Star. So even though he doesn't have that ring, um, he does have a lot of other accolades and just what a tremendous career, 1,500 games in the league. Um, that's just ridiculous. Not a lot of guys can do that. And just like Pinello said, for us growing up, this was one of the major guys in the NHL consistently for at least 15 years. So I'm really happy for Aginla. I'm really happy for Hosa. I think this is a guy as well where no one really, like, like no one really appreciated him as much as I think maybe we should have. I think he's one of the greatest Czech players ever, if not the best putting up uh, 1,100 points, 500 goals. He had 100 points for Atlanta in 06. He's a five-time, or he's a three-time Stanley Cup winner. Uh, this guy went to the finals like six years in a row or something. Yeah, Marion Host is also, he, he's, maybe he beat out a couple guys that maybe deserved it sooner than him, but no doubt he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, Marion Hosa, though, the only thing I don't like about him going in is because he's still under contract, really, and hasn't officially retired, because if he officially retired, then Arizona's cap hit would uh, show that, and I don't know, if he were to retire, he would still not be eligible until his contract runs up, so another three years, so I think he kind of cut the line here, I don't like this kind of rule where a guy on LTIR, I don't know, really go in, even though they don't play, so... That's one thing, even though he's deserving of it, like you mentioned, Slovak players like him, he's probably like the best one to come out of there. Uh, Jerome Ginla deserves it 100%. He was a lock. I'm looking at Kevin Lowe, though, and <laughs> I don't know, like good player, maybe. I didn't really grow up watching him, but when you look at the team he was on, you know, kind of collected some cups playing with Gretzky, Messier, and the boys over there. So do you think this one jumps out? People are going to look at this like, yeah, he was a good player, but Hall of Fame, I don't think so. I think this is a guy you look at and think maybe like further down the road once a lot of other guys go in. But um, yeah, he was obviously on that Oilers team during that decade where they just fucking smashed everybody. He's got, it was five or six Stanley Cups, but um, 
Uh, yeah, I think I'm with you. Maybe just I would have waited a little bit on this one. I don't know if that's going to stir up some drama with some of the older fans, but uh, I may have waited on Kevin Lowe. I think in terms of guys like Kevin Lowe, especially on a team like Edmonton, I think they're just trying to celebrate the team's legacy to a certain extent. Like it doesn't matter. I think your role on that team is just that team was unstoppable. So the NHL and the NHL's legacy, they're going to acknowledge outstanding teams. And I think it doesn't really matter what your role was on that team. Um, I, I do agree with you guys. I think maybe Kevin Lowe should have waited. Maybe a guy like a Theo Fleury, a McGillney, someone with a little more, I'll say, independent value maybe should have gone in. Kevin Lowe, I, I think he had a career year. It was like 47 points. But he was a great role player for Edmonton at the time. I think he was a third, fourth line goon protecting guys like Gretzky. So uh, I think at the end of the day, they they just try to – they just try to evaluate the best teams of all time. You look at like the 96 Bulls, you know, you look at how important those Piston teams were back in the day. You, you talk about, you know, um, the Spurs. Then you go back and you could even talk about the New Jersey Devils. You could talk about the Oilers. You could talk about the Islanders. There's just a lot of different guys. Um, like I think of Dynasty and I that that's where I think these guys, it doesn't matter um, what – what type of player you were statistically, it, as long as you were on that team that just dominated for like a decade, like you guys just said with Edmonton, I think it really doesn't matter, at least for in Gary Bettman's eyes. I don't think it really matters to him. I think it's just the legacy of the, that team that dominated that is the most important when going into the Hall of Fame. Because you guys got to remember, there's a whole section there in the Hall of Fame where it's literally Montreal Canadiens. And it's literally all about you know, the, the hockey sweater, the jersey, uh, uh, what's it, like uh, Rocky Richard there. You, you talk about Guy Lafleur. So I think at that point, when you talk about guys like Kevin Lowe, it's more specifically about that Edmonton team. It's not really more. It's not really about Kevin Lowe. It's more about his impact with Edmonton. So I think that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. But other than that, I mean, I kind of don't really disagree here. I think this is a solid class. Maybe I, I would have maybe have loved to seen like a Cujo go in, seen as Ed Bell formate it. So uh, maybe down the line we could see names that we're a little more familiar with. Yeah, then Trump. So like, I'm looking at Cujo, McGillney, especially. Even though McGillney was past his prime at times, like he didn't have the long prime like a Hosa and a Ginla. He's a guy that kind of revolutionized and made a path for those Russian players to come over. He took a chance on his life and. Uh, came up there in Buffalo. I think he should have been in a long time ago. Uh, Kujo is another guy that's, to me, top 10 goalies. A lot of people can complain. And, oh, their uh, era was bad. The goaltending wasn't good. You look at who he was matched up against. All those guys that were playing at the time, like Broder, Kashik, uh, Patrick Waugh, Grant Fuhrer. All these guys were still considered the best of all time, and he was playing against them, and he still piled up all the wins. So, those are the names I think are just jumping out. And then you have all those guys that want Jeremy Roenick in, Alfred Sinan, and Theo Fleury. So, uh, Piniello, who do you uh, think should have been in that's uh, constantly left out? You know what? This is, uh, I said it just before we went on, and I'm surprised I'm saying this, but I'm going to go with Daniel Alfredson. Uh, I know. He, I know. He's got no Stanley Cups. None of that shit. But uh, he's, uh, he was a lifer with the Ottawa Senators. He did so much for that franchise. I don't think you can overlook 
how much he did for that franchise, especially like as they were starting to grow in Ottawa. Um, I don't have the stats in front of me, but like the guy was a killer for a long time. I remember hated him growing up the battles with the uh, Leafs and Sens, him versus Sundin. So uh, it's not as prestigious as some as other, uh, other uh, as some of the other guys that doesn't have all the awards and all that. But I, I thought he was a great player, and I think he'll have his due soon. Yeah, I agree. I think I'm gonna lean a little more towards Cujo um, more than Alfredson, but both those guys are well deserving. I like the point you brought up, uh, Alino, where Cujo had to kind of battle with the greats. And when, you know, you, you look back in the late 90s, early two, or even the early 90s and, you know, into the, into the 2000s, you talk about the greatest goalies of all time. You talk about Patrick Waugh, who, again, early 90s, he was a freak in Montreal. And it, he was so good that they couldn't, they couldn't deal with him. They had to trade him. And he ended up winning cups in Colorado. And then you see a guy like Martin Broder come in the league. And he, to me, he's the Wayne Gretzky of goalies. He's the greatest goalie of all time. Um, I don't think anyone will ever get the stats that Broder has. And then you have another guy, Ed Belfour. And let me, let me bring up this guy's name, who I also think is a top three goalie all time, Dominic Hasek. So there were a lot of guys that Cujo had to, he had to battle against. And him accumulating all those wins and, you know, making that Leaf team – you know, making us believe that we had confidence in going far. I think that says a lot for how hard Cujo had to work. And when I think of Hall of Famers, guys, I think about work ethic. I think about how hard you had to work. You know, how, how it, like stats are one thing, but if you have like outstanding line mates and, you know, you're a right way, like, because again, we all know that like positions are a little higher value if you're a center if you're a goalie i feel like that just brings a little more value to the table than a winger we all know that we all play fantasy so i feel like that's definitely something that you got to look at but for me it's work ethic and i think cujo was the definition of work ethic he was trying to outlast the greats in his career and he he had a great great resume so i think i i gotta go with cujo but in terms of Daniel Alfredson, this guy, just like Aginla, didn't have any cups. Didn't even, well, he went to the Stanley Cup finals, but that Ducks team was incredible. But man, oh man, Alfredson, for years, we were debating if, well, not we, because we're biased, but the NHL was basically debating, is Daniel Alfredson better than Sundin? Is Daniel Alfredson better than, than uh, Peter Forsberg? These were questions that were asked consistently back in the day. So if Peter Forsberg is going into the Hall of Fame and Matt Sundin, Daniel Alfredson will 100% be a Hall of Famer one day. So I know both these guys will be Hall of Famers. It's just a matter of when. Do you think they put too much of an emphasis on Stanley Cups? Like, it's not that, like basketball, it's not the NHL or NBA Hall of Fame. It's the Hockey Hall of Fame. So guys that go to the World Championships every summer and the Olympics, and they win Olympic gold medal like Alfred 2006 with Sundin. Like, do you think they're not really taking that into account? They're just using, okay, you want a Stanley Cup? That's our, uh, our guess, criteria to get into the Hall of Fame? I don't know. I feel like, I feel like that's got to change. If that's the case, if it's just Stanley Cups, that, that's, um, that's, that's definitely a debate where a lot of fans would get angry. Like, me, for one, I really love um, – if 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 someone's gonna go into the Hall of Fame, uh, I would I would start with their junior career. I would see you know what they did right off the bat. You know maybe 17, 18 years old. The journey to get to the NHL. I don't think enough um, people 
talk about that. You know, we just talk about their career in the NHL. But again, you know, sometimes I think we need to talk about how great they were on their way getting there. So you look at guys like Eberle, you look at guys like Taves, you look at those guys that just world junior legends, their icons there, Tavares, I can talk about those guys forever. But when you talk about Stanley Cups, there's so many guys that just don't have it. And like we just talked about Jerome McGinley, Daniel Alfredson. How about this guy named Joe Thornton? He's been in the league for 22 years, still doesn't have a Stanley Cup. So I think at the end of the day, they need to start changing the criteria if that is the main thing, because it's not all about the Stanley Cup, believe it or not. I know that's what they're playing for. But at the end of the day, if you're going to create your own legacy, like look at Joe Thornton, no Stanley Cup. But guys, what are you going to think of when you think of Joe Thornton? For me, I think of greatest playmaker of this era. So I think it, it comes down to your legacy, you know, what you put on on the ice. That's, of course, again, it, it relates back to work ethic. But success, I, I don't really think it's just Stanley Cups. I mean, as long as you can build a legacy, I think that's the success right there. So. Um, I, I, don't, I wouldn't base it just off Stanley Cups. I would base it off of legacy. I would base it off a little bit of stats, and I would probably put in a loyalty. Loyalty, I think, is a big factor um, for a legacy, and Marlo, Thornton, those guys, Aginla, they all had it. So um, I, think if, I think Stanley Cups are great, but I don't think it should be the main criteria for the Hall of Fame. It's not a... It's not a deal breaker for me. I just want them to like include some of the double IHF stuff because most of the NHL players go there anyways. And like a lot of those guys are like multiple, like Nathan McKinnon's got like four gold medals at the age of 23. And it's not going to get mentioned by the end of his career because it's all NHL based. That's my only thing. I don't think it's a deal breaker though, by any means. Yeah. And I'm also looking around like this might sound crazy, but in five years, maybe even earlier, I think our boy Ray Ferraro could be a Hall of Famer. Just look at what he did in his career as a player, was put up consistent numbers. And then as a broadcaster, like that's an important part of the game as well. What he's doing, he's probably one of the most respected analysts for the NHL. So for also including that part and taking that into account of what you did as a junior, like, like what Chris mentioned there, then what you did in the NHL and then past NHL, I think Ray Ferraro should have been a lock for the Hall of Fame even now. You know what? He would have won CHL Player of the Year, but I think it was the same year Lemieux had like 160 goals in the <laughs> CHL, and then he was runner-up. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's not fair. <laughs> you can't talk about Lemieux. It's just not fair. That guy, arguably better offensive player than Gretzky. That's I just for love when, I love when he tells the story, Ray. Because it was like the best year of his life, and he gets so mad because it's like you're not gonna fucking beat Lemieux out. No, <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> oh man. Well, on that note, that's uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame. Looking forward to that whenever they have it. I don't know if they'll have fans there or uh, even hockey people in the building downtown Toronto at the Hockey Hall of Fame later. So hopefully cases are down so they can at least have their families in attendance and have some speech but uh on to extreme rules the horror show known as extreme rules is what they're calling it now i don't know i'm not liking this card at all <laughs> we got drew mcintyre versus Dolph ziggler in the main event in a tbd match so they don't even have a stipulation yet 
Asuka's taking on SmackDown Sasha Banks. Bailey's taking on Nikki Cross. Braun Strowman and Bray Wyatt will be competing in a Wyatt Swamp fight. Okay, that's great. And uh, Rey Mysterio taking on Seth Rollins. Die match. And of course, you can't forget Apollo Crews defending the new U.S. title against MVP. How awesome is this pay-per-view going to be, guys? It's looking like, uh, I think with the exception of Dolph and Drew, this is just, and Seth and Ray. I'm excited for that one. Just another standard show. Nothing really stands <laughs> out here. Just want to see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think I, I'm, I'm also kind of intrigued with Asuka and Sasha Banks. I think that can be... Uh, that could be good, but I have a feeling Bailey will come out and you'll see shenanigans there. So probably not, but I'm, I'm just looking forward to a, I'm looking forward to Seth and Ray, but more importantly, I'm looking forward to, of course, Dolph and Drew. I think that's going to be amazing. I think Dolph, uh, I think he knows that every day that he puts on those boots, it's getting closer and closer to his last. So I feel like every run that he is a part of, Moving forward, I think he's going to put that much more of an effort in. So whether he's that loving baby face that we should feel sorry for or he's that cocky, arrogant heel, we're going to love him either way. And he's going to put on a great match with Drew. I think this has been one of the most rejuvenating WWE title runs I've seen in a very long time with Drew McIntyre. So right now, it's been all positive uh, stuff with the WWE title. So I'm all in for it. It's different. It's fresh. I thought we were going to get Bobby Lashley here, but we got Dolph. So I'm excited for that. But other than that, guys, yeah, I don't know if this show is really going to it's really going to pan out. I think the Bray Wyatt versus Braun Strowman match has to deliver kind of like how AJ and uh, Undertaker did. But it definitely won't be at that level. But um, I think it has to deliver. And if it delivers, then we can maybe be in for a surprise, just kind of like how WrestleMania was. What do you think of uh, Braun Strowman's promos recently? Is he boring you to death? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, man. I don't, I don't know. know. Uh, Mike. <laughs> what's that? I don't know why they're giving him a mic. Oh, like, I don't like. I feel like it's good material, but just hearing it from Braun... I don't, it's kind of boring to me. Like, I'm excited to see how the match goes just because of all the history they have and it, the swamp fight or whatever the fuck they're calling it. But they're going back to where they first met or wherever, wherever it all started, however you want to phrase it. So I'm excited for that. But, like, just watching SmackDown and listening to Braun, it kind of it, it fucking steers me the other way. That's just me, though. Yeah, I'm just looking at... It started off so good when they had Bray Wyatt. Like, that was kind of a surprise when he had the Firefly Funhouse, and then he brought back his old character. And then Braun Strowman didn't say a word. He just looked at him. I think that, like, perfect delivery. That's exactly what you wanted. I think that delivered. The next week when Bray Wyatt's on screen like that, they made Braun Strowman talk. That was where Well, I think they should have just let him do the, like, let Bray Wyatt do all the talking and have Braun Strowman one-liners here and there because... The more he cuts promos, it's not making me want to see this match. It's just going to make me think of, okay, let's just get to SummerSlam when they probably have a Firefly Funhouse match with The Fiend involved. So if they just let Bray Wyatt do the talking every week, I would have been invested. But the more they make Braun Strowman cut long promos, 
where he's saying the same thing and rambling on. I have no interest in the match, so I hope it delivers, though. I feel like we got to appreciate Bray a little more, you know, with what he's doing with the three characters. He's going from, you know, The Fiend to Bray Wyatt to, you know, now he's the eater of worlds again. So, like, this guy is doing what Mankind did all those years ago, changing up the character. But Braun Strowman, like, I knew from WrestleMania on, like, there would be some sort of problem. When he became the universal champion, I knew that there would be this this little nick in the wheel. Like, there's just something wrong with Braun being the champ. We've been saying this for like a year now. It's it's overdue. It's been like he was due in 2017 to have it when he was feuding with Roman Reigns and he was tipping cars and he was, you know, he was the he was the main attraction on Raw. And now he's on SmackDown. He was for, basically forced to move to SmackDown to take out Goldberg because of Roman Reigns dipping because of COVID. But other than that, like him as a face and him talking, and it's just like, this is not you, man. Like you're not, you're not a guy that goes on the mic and cuts promos. Like look at what we saw with him and Brock way back when he fucked up that promo. It's like, he, you're not a guy that should grab the mic. You're a guy that uses action. Don't talk. Just use action. That's all. Just get these heads. That's all you have to say. You don't have to be cutting promos about the legacy, about you know how I'm still the champ, and I can like you, you don't have to do that. So I think like I'm. You guys know I'm a big Braun Strowman fan. I've been a I've been a fan of him for a while. It's just it's getting to that point where he's becoming a fraud, and he's he's trying really hard to be some someone that he's not and I a lot of people can can uh take that in a positive way well well where they're saying you know he's changing his ways he's trying to evolve as a character but at the same time how much more can you evolve you're you're the universal champion you're the champ it's not like you're 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 chasing it cuz we all know that sometimes the chase is better than you know having it like look at Daniel Bryan 2014 like that was amazing he, he he gravitated to the fans, and this is where a guy, Braun Strowman, he's the champ, and Bray Wyatt is gravitating to the fans, and it's because of his characters. So I, I feel like Braun Strowman is kind of in a corner, and uh, we all know he's going to lose the Universal title eventually. It's just, when I look back at this reign, it's very disappointing for me. And, and But again, you kind of can't blame him. He had to be Goldberg for it. So it's just one of those where this is a great cloud for the Universal title. And uh, when we get out of it, we will see how uh, everything else pans out. But for now, I really want Braun Strowman to not be the universal champion anymore. I want to see Bray with it. So I know it's not for the title here, but SummerSlam comes. I want to see The Fiend with it again. So this is uh, (laughs) interesting because uh, now, okay, they got another week to build this. I don't know how they're going to get people invested in Braun Strowman. So. I think their long-term booking is SummerSlam. So this next week, the next two SmackDowns are going to probably be Braun doing the same old thing. They got a new choo-choo train in his uh, entrance, so that's all good. Uh, we got another interesting thing, though, now I'm looking at this card. Uh, Drew McIntyre, Dolph Ziggler. So next week they'll probably say the stipulation. What if this match goes on? Dolph Ziggler looks like he's going to get the win in a screwy fashion. And uh, out comes Otis, Mr. Money in the Bank. And what if he walks out Extreme Rules by pinning Dolph Ziggler? Oh, oh my. <laughs> I didn't think 
<laughs> I didn't I didn't think of that. Uh that would not be good for me. I don't want to see him as a WWE champion. But, uh yeah, that'd be jokes. That would be pretty jokes. I would love to see it just to rekindle the feud with Dolph he had before. I don't want Drew involved in any way. Drew's got to keep this title. But if Otis were to come out and then screw Dolph over, he'd start that feud up again. That would be hilarious. <laughs> and then now looking at this card. So SummerSlam's probably at the Performance Center again, like uh, all the other pay-per-views. I don't think they're going to be going anywhere and risking it. What do you think, or what do you want to see for SummerSlam, knowing that it is probably going to be at the Performance Center again? I don't think you can ask for a whole lot, honestly. Um, you, like they, they've been treating SummerSlam like, well, it is. It's one of the main four pay-per-views, but now like it's like a WrestleMania extravaganza every time it comes to town, and it's like it, they take over the whole fucking weekend. So I think you can expect what you saw at Mania. It's it's really. It's kind of a tough call. I don't know. What can you do, really? Well, I feel like ever since the cinematic uh, matches, I feel like Vince uh, really has loved the idea of it and the results. So I think you're going to probably see that again at, at, at SummerSlam. You're probably going to see like maybe a John Cena or like maybe someone else have a cinematic match. Maybe that's not there right now, like a part-timer. Um I'm okay with that. If you're a part-timer and you come back and you want to do like a cinematic experience like that, I'm all for that. I think that's, that's entertaining. I wouldn't be surprised. You guys are probably going to laugh when I say this. I wouldn't be surprised if triple H returns at SummerSlam and has a cinematic match. So I I really don't know. You can never count that out. So I feel like we're going to see like three cinematic matches the Firefly Funhouse will probably be one of them. And uh, you'll probably see uh, Brock Lesnar also make his, his uh, return. So I think that's what you're going to expect at SummerSlam. Have they done one every single pay-per-view since WrestleMania, the cinematic matches? They yeah. have, yeah. Well, I, I guess there it is then. It's been a big <laughs> hit since Taker and uh, Styles did it. So, yeah, we said right away, like, everyone that like such an amazing review the first time they did it and it's been a consistent thing going forward so you're probably right on that for SummerSlam, fucking nine hour show or whatever you might see like three of those <laughs> do you want to see guys like brock or i don't know christian versus orton like do you want to see something like that or should they hold a little bit and let orton's story build up more oh i would love to see brock in that situation I just I want to see how he would go about it. We just know him as this one-dimensional killer. He'll bust out some moves here and there, like we saw with the Brock party. But I would love to see him in that cinematic experience. Just want to see how it would go with him. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool with Brock. I th- I feel like maybe you could do like a Brock Lesnar versus like Bobby Lashley, like a cinematic brawl. I don't know, like like you could maybe do like a bar fight, like with like. Lesnar and Lashley, or you could do like Lesnar and Sheamus in like a bar fight. That'd be pretty cool. I know Sheamus won't face Lesnar. We'll, we'll probably never see that, but I'd like to see that. Two two Hall of Famers right there going to go at it. Uh, WWE, if you're listening to this, that's a good pitch. Bar fight, Sheamus versus Brock Lesnar. But um, I, I don't want to see Christian versus Randy Orton. Uh, I don't want to see that. I feel like Christian isn't, he's, he isn't in shape. 
I, I mean, I don't think he's in, in, in ring shape. Uh, Randy Orton deserves better than that now. I feel like he could... I, I want to see him face Drew McIntyre at SummerSlam. I feel like that is where they're kind of leading. I feel like Big Show's going to get punted um, by Randy at Extreme Rules, if that's still happening, or the Great American Bash, wherever the hell they're having it. But uh, I want to see Randy Orton versus Drew McIntyre for the WWE title. I think that's what's best. And I feel like Randy Orton right now is the hottest, one of the hottest superstars in all of wrestling. So Randy Orton's rejuvenated. You know what that means. Um, I feel like you could pick up the Christian storyline, though, a little later on. Because like, Edge got hurt, it probably derailed things. But I like yeah. I would still love to see that fucking match. There's still so much there. Uh, you were just raving about Randy. He's doing some amazing work. The stuff with the big show now. Um, I would still love to see the match. You know, if all the stars aligned and everything. You know, if Edge comes back, you know, if everything works out. So I would still love to see that match just a different time. Yeah, I think that's probably Royal Rumble. Maybe even next year's WrestleMania, depending on how long Edge is out. I think they were saying he's definitely out until December. So... If he cuts able to, I don't want to see it just come out in the Royal Rumble and take out Orton because that's been done. But maybe if they wrestle at Royal Rumble, that would be something different as an attraction where you don't need them in the actual match. But what about, uh, would you do Orton versus Lesnar again or Orton versus Styles? 100%. 100%. Orton Lesnar, I'd do again just because you fuck. Randy, I don't, I can't even explain it with Randy. It's so on and off like a light switch. Right now he's on. No one's hotter. If they can build towards that, I would love another program with Lesnar. Yeah, I, I like both. I think, I think I, I'd love to see him feud with AJ. Just have AJ maybe turn face, and you could have this heel Randy. Um, I, I'd love that. But even like, imagine a face Brock Lesnar like coming back like just going up to Randy and like sticking up for like, I don't know, like whoever he's punted, like just, that would be pretty different. Like a face Lesnar taking on a, a heel Randy with like a Ric Flair that screams big money right there. So I'd love to see that. I, I think Randy Orton, like Pinello just said, I think he's, I think he's, he's, he's off and on, but when he's on, He's running the wrestling industry. So right now, he's probably number one. Uh, I'd have him right now up there for Superstar of the Year. Uh, we're, we're in July, so Randy Orton is right there for me right now. Um, you know, you, you have Drew there, you have Seth, you have Charlotte, you have all these great names. But what Randy has just been able to do at his age now, it's just ridiculous. Like, I never thought he would be in this position again. And he's right back up there. You know, remember, I remember even a feud with Jeff Hardy. Like, I thought that would kind of be like nothing. And then their match at Hell in the Cell was amazing. So when you, when you get a heel sadistic Randy Orton, there's nothing better than that. So I feel like, again, we haven't seen Brock for a couple months. I think if Brock were to come back as a face, I think that would be perfect because we, we rarely see that and uh, the tables would have been turned since SummerSlam of 2016. So maybe you could have Randy say, hey, I remember, I don't forget when you busted me open, there's a punt waiting for you. <laughs> I'd love to see, sicko. Love to see Brock sell that, sell the punt and then kick out. Like that, <laughs> that would be fucking hilarious. Oh, man. And then, uh, there's yeah, there's a lot of stuff they can do. I'm just even thinking about... Uh, you know, Dominic for Seth Rollins. 
can uh, you can play that up big depending on what Seth Rollins does to Ray. You can have Dominic step in at SummerSlam and shock everybody, show everyone uh, that he has all the traits of Ray, and you know that other storyline with Eddie. Maybe if he does a couple frog splashes here and there, that'd be solid. Uh, but what other, I guess, feuds that you want to see in the cinematic type match? Like, is there something like a Jeff Hardy versus the Fiend, or uh, like? Hey, who would you put in a cinematic type match? You know what? Uh, they feuded a little while ago, and I think it's going to pick up again. I don't know what the whole scenario would be, but I want to go Seth Rollins versus Aleister Black. Oh, boom. That's a I want to go AJ Styles versus Samoa Joe. <laughs> oh, I make the return. <laughs> I need yep. to see that in a cinematic match. I need to see that. So I'd go with AJ Styles. And just because of how well he did with The Undertaker, I want to see him and I want to see uh, him and Samoa Joe go at it. Oh, can you imagine if they get a six sided ring, go wherever they're doing the cinematic match and have that as one of the scenes? Have like all the uh, Jeff Jarrett at ringside and they have like the Firefly. <laughs> it's like they're in TNA gear and they turn back the clock. That'd be jokes. Nice six-sided ring mayhem or something stupid like that. If Joe were to come back, it's got to be in like a extravagant way. Like remember when uh, when fucking Austin Aries came back against Neville and he was interviewing yeah. him, and like the crowd was just buzzing because you knew Austin was gonna rock him with the mic or something. Like when Joe comes back, it's got to be a big deal. Oh, it will, Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I like when they were talking about it. Like Samoa Joe was uh, like the Intercontinental title. I was like, oh, AJ, like, yeah, hope you can celebrate with your family. And he was doing such a serious look at the camera. Like he was trying to sell it. It was jokes. It's like he was going to bring it up. It's like it's still fresh in his mind. So I would love to see that. Don't pick that up there. But what do you guys think of this whole Jeff Hardy? I guess the last question on uh, wrestling. What do you think of Jeff Hardy and Sheamus? Because... If you saw last week on SmackDown, like Sheamus went full on. That was like a Comedy Central roast kind of stuff he was bringing up there. So are you a fan of this type of thing? Like, or should they tone it down a little bit? Should probably tone it down. Uh, I'm still surprised that they they wanted to relive this whole feud. Jeff has done it like three times, this fucking DUI angle or whatever. But, um... Like, they're doing good work, though. Like, Sheamus and Jeff, like, they work solid together. Uh, having Sheamus there via satellite when they were toasting is just fucking killing me. Sheamus makes me laugh. Um, the, the match should be good. I mean, there's a lot of heat there. It's going to be a brawl. They should kill each other eventually. So I'm getting a little more into it. But uh, I think overall, I, I could do without the story. They, they rocked it with CM Punk 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I I think whatever makes them, you know, valuable. And I, unfortunately, I think that this is where Jeff Hardy is probably the most valuable, where it's like, yeah, like we got to feel sorry for him as a as a baby face. You know, he's had his demons. Let's keep bringing it up and let's uh, let's expose him. So I love the, the heel work that Sheamus has done. I, I maybe would have loved to see him as a baby face again, maybe go for a title. But this is uh this is perfect. They're both doing the best in what they're working with. Like I've I've said this for years now. Like 
even when Sheamus came back with the new look and he won the money in the bank and like <laughs> he was like he was rolling with that character and then he became you know a tag team with Cesaro and we all know how well that went so like Sheamus is to me a bona fide great anything that he's he's a part of it's perfect I think here it's there's it's no different I think he's he's nailing the role here and I think at the end of it all, you're probably going to see Jeff Hardy emerge as the winner, and you're probably going to see Jeff Hardy maybe get a, one last push. I, I wouldn't say W. I wouldn't say Universal Title push, but I'd maybe say Intercontinental Title push. But that's pushing it for me. So whatever these two guys are, they're legends, they're veterans, and you know uh, Vince is uh, keeping them busy. But I agree with Pinello. I feel like we can maybe do without this storyline for both superstars. I think it can maybe benefit a little more. If they were to do something else, yeah, I feel you there. That's a good point. Uh, now it's time for another segment, or we're going to continue this a redraft. Last week we turned back the clock to 2001. We redrafted the NHL draft that year. Spezzo, Kolbachuk, and gave our thoughts on uh, the top 15. This week we're going to go back even more to 1996 and the NBA. This time. And we're going to look back at one of the greatest drafts in, of all time in NBA history. Uh, this draft brought a lot of superstars to the league, a new era that came after the Michael Jordan era, uh, fresh faces, uh, guys that changed the game of basketball. So, uh, Peniel, I'll start off with you. If we're redrafting, uh, I guess we all probably have the same number all, one overall pick, so I'll just talk about them. So, Peniel, you kick it off, number one. In the 1996 draft, if you were the Philadelphia 76ers, who are you taking? If I'm the Philadelphia 76ers, I am taking Kobe Bryant, first overall. Uh, yeah, miniature Michael Jordan. We grew up with this guy. This was our MJ. Uh, I'll let you guys talk about his stats and all that because there's just, there is so much here. 18-time All-Star, two-time scoring champ, one of the most clutch performers in history. Can't go wrong with the number one pick, Kobe Bryant. Yeah, Kobe Bryant's number one, and to me, it's not even close uh, with what he's done. He, like like Pinello just said, he was our Michael Jordan. He is a baby Michael Jordan, and then after Kobe Bryant, you have a baby Kobe Bryant, and that's Tracy McGrady. So it's amazing how uh, you can shape out how you play with other players. It's amazing. But yeah, Kobe Bryant, career 25-point-per-game guy. Just an absolute rock when it came to scoring. His career year was ridiculous. He averaged 35.4 in 05-06. Uh, I don't know how he didn't win the MVP that year, but that's just me. Three-time All-Star MVP, two-time Finals MVP, one-time MVP, five-time NBA champion. This guy did it all. He was also a Laker his whole career. Even though he got drafted by Charlotte, he was a Laker for his whole career. So you also have to bring up loyalty. And that's, you guys all know how much I love loyalty. So that's number one. So if the Philadelphia 76ers had the first pick, they would have had Kobe Bryant. Yeah, everything you said there. Kobe, number one. Uh, he was everything Michael Jordan was to Chicago. He did that to L.A. That's crazy that Charlotte is a team that traded him. They originally had a steal there. And the great wisdom, I guess, from their front office, they go and get Vladdy Divac. So... That's a trade that's going to haunt them forever. But Kobe, everything you said, five championships, uh, the finals MVPs, the MVP, the Olympic gold medals. 
I think a lot of people want to use that same argument, like, oh, if Allen Iverson played with Shaq, maybe he would have won five rings too. But I don't think that's the case. I think maybe he would have won one or two, but I think Kobe needed each other to win those three rings early on. Uh, Kobe's work ethic, Shaq's dominance, they were two styles that clashed at times, but overall they were probably the two styles that they needed in their careers at the time to motivate them to get to that next level. So uh, I still have Kobe Bryant far away from Allen Iverson. Might be a controversial opinion than what some people think. A lot of people have a, a little bit closer, but I think Kobe is by far the best player in this draft. And it's not even close. So I got Kobe, number one to Philly. So Pinello, the second pick, which the Raptors, I guess, they got robbed of the first overall pick because uh, they were an expansion team. They had Marcus Camby at number two. So if you're the Raptors, who do you select? Not Marcus Camby. To the Toronto Raptors, Steve Nash. Ooh, yeah. Fucking put Canadian basketball on the map, this guy. Five-time assist champ. Two-time MVP, man. There was a time in Dallas when, um, when him and Dirk looked like they were going to be like the next big thing, and then they ended up shipping him back to Phoenix, and he he just had such a run there. Um, always ran into Kobe, so never had the privilege to go to the finals, but just an unbelievable player, one of the best facilitators ever. So I got Steve Nash to the Raptors at number two. I also have Steve Nash, number two. And the reason being is how dominant he was and how important he was for Phoenix. You talk statistically, he won't put up the numbers like Allen Iverson and Kobe. But man, like this guy was dominant on the floor for Phoenix. When he was going, the team was winning. And that's why he won the MVP that, those two years in a row. Uh, he was the most important player on any team that year. And he averaged 8.5 in his career, only 14 uh, points per game in his career. But you're talking about a back-to-back -back MVP, an eight-time NBA All-Star. Yeah, his career year was in 05-06 when he went to the, the conference finals against Kobe. He averaged 18.8. In the playoffs, he averaged 23 uh, I, I talked about it before the pod went up. If you guys go back and watch that series, it was literally Steve Nash versus Kobe Bryant. Both those guys just had tremendous impact for their team. Um, yeah, like like Pinello just said, Steve Nash is like the Canadian pioneer for basketball. Even though Vince Carter kind of brought popularity to Toronto for basketball, Steve Nash was Canadian and he was one of the pioneers. So that also puts a big impact on the draft status. I got Steve Nash ahead of Allen Iverson at number two. I also have Steve Nash ahead of uh, Allen Iverson. And this is going to surprise some people, but you have to also look at this. Toronto and Vancouver are two and three here. If I'm Toronto, I'm also looking at this from a marketing campaign. I can get a Canadian who's going to be unbelievable in his career. I can have him be the face. I'm not going to make Vancouver steal that marketing and have their Canadian star play in his hometown. I'm going to steal that from them, be a ruthless GM, and I'm going to take Steve Nash and the MVPs I followed. I know then, in a couple years, I know Steve Nash, it's going to take a long time to develop. A few more years than Allen Iverson, he's not going to be prepared to take that step yet. And then I know once he's ready, I'll be able to draft Vince Carter still. And I'll have Vince Carter, Tracy McGrady, and a facilitator in Steve Nash. Let Iverson go and score elsewhere. I'm going to build a program here 
And that's why I'm taking Steve Nash, number two on the Raptors. So uh, Pinello, number three, was uh, Sharif Abdur Rahim to Vancouver. Uh, who are you taking then at number three? Uh, I think now it's time to take AI. Got Allen Iverson, number three to the Grizzlies. Um, 11-time All-Star, scoring champ multiple times. The 2000-2001 MVP season is the, the year everyone talks about when it comes to AI just dragging that fucking mediocre team to the finals. Um, he's had 30 points multiple times. Just Just an iconic player when you look back in NBA history. So... It's no insult that he's going number three here, but, uh, well, I guess that's it. Yeah, AI number three. <laughs> yeah, AI's third for me as well. These are the big three in the draft, even though number four is pretty obvious too. But Allen Iverson, his career average is higher than Kobe's. He averaged more points per game, which you look at that, and it's kind of – I don't know. I, I When I saw that, I was kind of surprised. I didn't think Allen Iverson had a better – point per game than Colby Bryant in his career, but he did. Um, he was he was the rookie of the year in this draft class. He was a two-time All-Star game MVP and MVP, an 11-time All-Star. He averaged 33 points per game in his career year, also in 05-06. Colby was the best scorer that year. Second was Allen Iverson. So you're looking at two just pivotal scores. I think the biggest thing with AI was how iconic he was, just like how Pinello just said. He was probably one of the most iconic players if not the most iconic player in this draft class he may be more iconic believe it or not and more important in basketball when you think of style and revolutionizing the game than kobe bryant if you think about it because kobe bryant molded his game off of mj and then you have a guy named Allen iverson at six foot one this undersized shooting guard who had the handles uh, he was probably the, one of the one of the one of the best handles of all time so Allen iverson was was one of those guys that came in the league and he made the league exciting. He made shorter guys think they had a chance to be one of the greatest in the game. So I think Allen Iverson going third overall is a must here. And again, probably the most iconic player in the draft and one of the most iconic players of all time. So I have AI going third. Yeah, I'm with you there. AI number three, everything you two mentioned. And just looking back, I think what a shame just to look at this draft, knowing what you know about all the players that Vancouver and Toronto, mostly Vancouver got screwed big time because let's say all the hype and we had everything now about all these pre-draft uh, camps and all the hype surrounding the draft. If they had that in 1996, Vancouver could have got a star like uh, Steve Nash or Allen Iverson, and they'd probably be in the league right now. We'd have two Canadian teams. And because, yeah, they got Sharif Abdurrahim. Maybe he was a good player for them early on, but it wasn't enough star power to keep the team there. If you had an Allen Iverson or a hometown guy like Steve Nash, you'd have something to build on long-term, and I think it would have grown the game even more in Canada and, and just relied on everything Vince Carter did to Toronto. If you had this in 1996, maybe it wouldn't have to be a dunk contest that put basketball on the map. Maybe it could have been basketball players playing in two of the biggest cities in this country so i would go Allen iverson number three uh easily but now uh number four is probably another easier one uh milwaukee bucks selected stefan marbury good guard but uh Piniello, who are you taking at number four we're gonna be changing that out for ray allen he has her 
one of the best three-point shooters ever. Held most of the records until fucking Curry messed that up. Uh, he averaged 20 points for 10 straight seasons, two-time NBA champion, 10-time All-Star. The second champ came in, uh, the second title came in great controversy. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think the top four for us is pretty straightforward here. So I got Ray Allen at number four. Yeah, Ray Allen is also number four. Uh, he's a career 40% three point shooter. Not a lot of guys can say that. If any, um, when you talk about clutch shooting, he was one of the one of those guys that you could give him the ball any time in the game, he will drain it. We saw you could ask LeBron James that question. Um, but Ray Allen, like you, you talk about him on the Supersonics, talk about him on Milwaukee. He was just the scorer and he was just so reliable. Even if, you know, he was he was the main option before KD went there. And then when he dipped, he went to Miami as a secondary guy and he went to Boston. And when he became like that secondary scorer, it just brought the best out of him because he knew that he was not that number one option anymore. So when he kind of accepted the secondary and third option role, he just strived and his shooting even got better as the years got went on. So Ray Allen to me is an OG when it comes to three point shooting. He's probably up there. He's probably top three all time. I got Curry, Clay, Ray and Reggie up there as the greatest shooters of all time. But man, what Ray Allen did he revolutionized the game just as much as an AI when you think of shooting and how far it's came. So I got Ray Allen at number four. His career year in 06-07 can't be ignored when he averaged 26.4 points per game. He's a 10-time All-Star, two-time NBA champion. This guy's number four easily. Yeah, I got Ray Allen number four. And a lot of people can even debate. He's one of the most clutch players in this draft class. Look at all the big moments and the big shots he hit in Boston and then in Miami when he saved LeBron's ass and made them come back against the Spurs and got that ring. So I think Ray Allen could even be debatable that he's even worthy of being top three. Maybe in some people's eyes, he is number three and that slots out either Steve Nash or Allen Iverson. But Ray Allen is a really important player uh, for his time, carried some teams. Then the guy in Boston, that big trade, him and Kevin Garnett came over and they won that championship. So I got Ray Allen, number four. And now this is where it gets interesting. Uh, Piniello, number five. Who are you taking? Alrighty. Number five. This was originally Minnesota. Uh, I'm going to give it to Jermaine O'Neal. Yeah. There was, um, there was a stretch with the Pacers there. I think he was one of the better interior scorers in the league. Uh, he got the last bit of Reggie Miller and Stephen Jackson was there, soon to be Met a world piece. So that had a pretty good core in the Eastern Conference. Um, he's a six-time All-Star, one most improved player. Solid career. So Jermaine O'Neal, I got at number five. Yeah, my number five, it's a little biased, um, but it's Ben Wallace. Like statistically, you're not gonna get um, you're not gonna get a lot from him. To me, he is one of the best defensive players I've ever seen. I remember this was like right when I started getting into basketball consistently around 03, 04. And I'm just watching that Pistons team. And like what this guy did was just scary. Like he averaged not, his career year was 9.7 points per game. And you can laugh all you want at that stat. But he's one of the scariest defenders of all time. One of the most intimidating guys. He's a four-time all-star just because of his defensive game. 
He's a four-time defensive player of the year, the most in NBA history. He's an NBA champion. He carried them to beat that Lakers team. My, oh my. Ben Wallace, to me, is one of those hidden gems. He's number five. Yeah, my number five, also Jermaine O'Neal. Aside from that one year on the Raptors where we thought we had something there with him and Chris Bosh, it got us Sean Marion, so... Lisa turned out okay, but uh, Jermaine O'Neal, I can't deny those years on the Pacers where at least five or six year stretch, he was getting big numbers over there. He's an important player, one of the best big men in the league. So uh, I got him at that spot. And uh, I think if he didn't start to pile up and if he was able to still be consistent, maybe he wouldn't have a decline like early on in his 30s. Maybe would have been able to have an extended career, but for what he had, Good for him. He had a decent career later on. He was a bench player after in Golden State. So uh, good to see him over there. And at least the early part of his career, though, with Indiana, uh, after he got traded from Portland, uh, I think was probably some of the best years of uh, his career for sure. Uh, Kicking it to number six now. Back to the Raptors. Marcus Camby. Uh, He's a four-time block champion, four-time all-defensive, defensive player of the year. Just a consistent defensive player for like 10 to 15 years. I will say, though, his career high points per game, rookie year with the Toronto Raptors, 14.8. Uh, primarily with the Knicks, though, put it in that grind. The Knicks and the Nuggets. So uh, I got Marcus Canby, number six. My number six is Jermaine O'Neal. Um, career-wise, like you're looking like he only averaged 13 points per game overall in his career, but... Those three, four years in uh, in Indiana, I remember in 03, he was third in MVP voting. He was the third best interior scorer behind two legends in Kevin Garnett and Tim Duncan. So that's amazing company to be in. Uh, yeah, he was a six-time All-Star, three-time All-NBA, third in MVP voting in 03. Um, one of the most dominant bigs that Indiana has ever seen. Um, but then, you know, now they have Zabonis and Turner and all those guys, but Jermaine O'Neal was just a different breed. He was a, he was a uh, interior beast, and uh, you probably won't see that for a long time um, in Indiana. So kudos to Jermaine O'Neal. He was a solid player. So I got Jermaine at number six. Yeah, my number six, Ben Wallace, a guy who went undrafted in this. I'm actually surprised no team found any value in him at the time. So. For the career he had to be undrafted and work his way onto a team, being one of the defensive best defensive players of his era, I got him easily at that spot. Uh, I Even though Stephen Marbury's here, I would take the defensive player if Marcus Camby and uh, Ben Wallace are available. I'm going to go Ben Wallace at that spot. I should probably say, before we go any further, I do not have Ben Wallace in my list. <laughs> I didn't know he was in this draft because he was undrafted. So I kind of fucked my whole shit up. So That's at number good. seven. <laughs> so instead of number seven to the Clippers, Stojakovic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Another fucking three-point legend. His time with the Kings was just amazing, averaging almost 20 every year. Uh, capped it off with a chip in 2010-11. Uh, he was, this guy was fourth in MVP voting. right behind Jermaine O'Neal. So this class is really putting in the fucking work. So I got Pejo Stojakovic, number seven. 
I agree. I got Stojakovic at 7-2 with all the things you just said. Three-time All-Star. He won it with the Mavs in 2010. So you got that under your belt, the uh, NBA championship. He's a uh, 89% free throw shooter in his career, which is outstanding. Like one of the best. That's really high. And he's a 40% three-point shooter in his career, just like Ray Allen. So these two guys are kind of pioneers before the Curry and the Clay Thompson. So you got to give Stojakovic some love, especially as he is a, you know, an international player. This is a huge deal, especially for the Serbians. So kudos to them. Um, but ask Chris Weber how good Peja Stojakovic was, and he'll give you his answer. So I have Stojakovic at seven. To me, in 0304, he was one of the deadliest shooters I've ever seen. I remember I used to play NBA court. I don't know if you guys remember that game where it was basically like a three-on-three smash video game. I always used to be Stojakovic. That's a jersey buy I need to get. Uh, Peja Stojakovic is at number seven. Yeah, I got uh, Stefan Marbury at number seven. Uh, Pretty good career. He put up uh, consistent numbers, over 20 a game for uh, the majority of his prime, but I like what you said there about Stojakovic. I'm only putting Marbury in because I think he could be a good number two. I don't think he can be like the number one guy, number one option, but if he's available, especially at seven, I wouldn't let him slip too much, especially being a guard like him and being able to point like get those numbers that he did. I think could be valuable if you already have a star in place on your team. So I'm going to go Stefan Marbury backcourt at number seven. At number eight, I got Stefan Marbury. Uh, Yeah, everything you just said. The stats were always there. It came right into the league hot. He put up 20 points like eight or nine times in his career. He barely went to the playoffs. That is, uh, (laughs) wasn't blessed with the best teams. He only went to the playoffs like four or five times and got swept every time, it looks like. So, um, yeah. And then he went over to China after, and he's got an established career over there. I think he left the NBA at like 30 or 31 and put on some work overseas. So Stefan Marbury, number eight. Yeah, my number eight is the defensive beast, Marcus Camby. Um, you know, yeah, his career year, like Pinello said, was with the Raps in his rookie year, which is screaming potential. That's why he went second overall. I think out of a lot of these guys, he was one of the most pro-ready guys when you look back at it, and that proved it. You know, he was an elite defender, a four-time blocking champion. No one really talks about that. So. Just like Ben Wallace, um, Marcus Camby is right there for like one of the defensive player goats. Like he's up there. He's an elite defensive player. He's a defensive player of the year only one time, but that's because you had Ben Wallace in the league. So that's a huge factor. And he's a four time all defensive team. So I'm basically taking Marcus Camby at eight because of his elite defensive abilities. So he's number eight for me. Yeah, number eight for me, Peja Stojakovic. Uh, I just think everything you guys said, deadly shooter from three. Uh, his role, they maximized every va- thing of his value that he had. Go to the corner, get the threes, put up numbers. He didn't have to be the number one guy on the team. Uh, you can slot him in. He can put a lot of trouble on defenses because then you have to manage, okay, we can't double team a guard, can't double team a center. Because this guy's on the corner, all his threes in. Just the percentage he put up is really good, especially for his time uh, when the three ball wasn't a thing that it is now, uh, dominating the league. So 
uh, for what he brought to the game, I think is really valuable to a team. And I think he could be a really good third option. So I got him at that spot. At, uh, with the ninth pick. All right, it's time, boys. Sharif Abdur Rahim. Yeah. <laughs> Hoover Grizzlies legend. Uh, he only made one all-star appearance. Not his fault. Not going to hold that against him. Um, yeah, when you look back, he, he just he filled up the stack sheet since coming into the league. He was the number one option there. Uh, him and Mike Bibby, I think, for a few years before he bounced Sacramento. Um, yeah, he was like even when he went to Atlanta and Portland too, he was just filling it up and then ran into some injury issues a later, uh, a little later down the road. So solid player doesn't really get the lot of love really, but I got him at number nine. Yeah, my number nine injuries killed his career. One of the most underrated guards in history, Stefan Marbury. Um, you look back in like 99, 2000, this guy was probably on pace to have a similar career as Allen Iverson in terms of points. Like they both kind of had like 24 in like 2000. And then of course, you know, the unfortunate injury, but in his career, man, he averaged 19 and seven. So that's very impressive. That's higher than Steve Nash, not as impactful on the court, but man, he was a two-time all-star. He averaged 29 times in his career. So that shows that Stefan Marbury, for the most part, was the primary option, and he did a good job at scoring, facilitating, too. I think he was underrated. I think, uh, you know, they, they, the duo of, of Kittle and, um, and Stefan Marbury would have been one of the more important duos, I think, in the era. Unfortunately, both of them had really, really injury-riddled careers. So um, I got Stefan Marbury at number nine if he didn't get injured. He would have been higher for sure, no doubt about it. My number nine, uh, Marcus Camby, uh, slipping down from number two. So just tells you the talent that was in this draft. Uh, he was a really good player for the Raptors. Uh, as early on, that one year where he got the 14 points. But uh, overall, he crafted a good defensive reliability to his team. And just what he brought to the table. I don't think he I would take Ben Wallace because I think Ben Wallace was much more uh, of a defensive threat to a team. And it led to Detroit winning the trophies and all that. So I got Camby just edged out there. But he is a really great defensive player. All NBA defensive teams. And uh, just what he accomplished is too bad he didn't want to come back to the Raptors when they traded Bargnani for him. Uh, that's his deal, though. Could have joined uh, DeRozan and Lowry that year and Valanchunas. But uh, I think... It would have been nice to see him close out his career after he got traded to the Raptors. Even if he wasn't able to perform and play 100%, I think it would have been nice to close out the career uh, that, with the team that drafted him. So I got Camby at nine. Closing this shit out with the 10th overall pick, Antoine Walker. Um, I feel like all of these guys, when I look at their stats, just they all came in firing right away, 17.5 in his rookie year, and he never really looked back. Just solid with Boston, solid throughout his entire career. Um, ended up winning with the Heat back in 05-06, three-time All-Star. Got him at number 10, Antoine Walker. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, ending it the same way. Antoine Walker, uh, early 2000s, him and Paul Pierce were the OG duo in Boston. Uh, he brought a lot of hope back to Celtic fans uh, at that time. You know, Paul Pierce was one of the best up-and-coming scorers, and Antoine Walker was one of the best secondary scores. So these two guys were killing Raptors fans for 
in the early 2000s. You know, he's a career 17 point per game player. He averaged about seven rebounds in his career. He's a three time All Star. Yeah, just like Pinello said, he won uh, the title with Shaq and D Wade in 06 with the Heat. Um, but yeah, him and Paul Pierce, they were a nasty duo in Boston. I'm taking Antoine Walker over guys like D Fisher, Sharif Abdul Rahim, just based off of what I saw when I was a kid, what he did against the Raps. It, it was terrible. It was, he was amazing. He's a very underrated player, Antoine Walker. Yeah, I'm with you guys. I'm closing it out. Antoine Walker, I have him edging out uh, Sharif Abdul Rahim and Derek Fisher just uh, barely. It's not like a huge far away uh mile with Antoine Walker but he was a really important piece for Boston uh averaged like 17 7 and 3 so he could facilitate the ball especially a guy his size coming in the paint and uh what he was able to do with Paul Pierce and then nice to see him get the win there in Miami Reef Abdul Rahim I was thinking about putting him there but like injuries really cut his career too short of what could have been uh he only played until he was about 30, 31. So it is a shame to see that. But uh, I do have Antoine Walker there. Derek Fisher does have the trophies, uh, but he was on the Lakers that were stacked. So uh, he's not like the best point guard in this draft to warrant that. So I got him outside the top 10. So closing it with Antoine Walker. Was he a five-time champ, Derek Fisher? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. What about, uh, <laughs> you got big Z here. And number oh, one, yeah. honorable mention. Yeah, that is a nice honorable mention. Playing with LeBron, at a boy, mooching off that. <laughs> was a good number two there because he had no other guy to come in. He was like a legitimate player, good center. Yeah, that's a good much, one. Uh, see how much LeBron really liked him. He spent his whole fucking career in Cleveland and then like a handful of games in Miami to retire. And that was the year they didn't win. is <laughs> the JV of Cleveland. Ah, JV's better, buddy. <laughs> JV's a stud. And Gauskas was a nice rebounder. Could maybe have a good game here or there. Kept LeBron there for a while, and then Shaq came along. That was fun, that one year. Shaq and LeBron. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's basically it, buddy. This was a good podcast. Where would you put 96's draft, I guess, as we close it? Where would you put that compared to 84 and 2003? Is that better than those drafts? Or would you still keep the 84 draft with Olajuwon and MJ and Stockton and all those guys at just slightly above 96? Ooh, crisper, start that. I think for, like, impacting the game, I think this might be number one. Like, for, like, like, you have Kobe, Steve Nash, Allen Iverson, Ray Allen, Stoyakovic, like these guys revolutionized the game like forever. Like, okay, like you had like Hakeem who was like kind of like a little more athletic Wilt Chamberlain. You had MJ who was, you know, MJ. But other than that, like you didn't really have a lot of guys in that draft that revolutionized the game. Like right off the top of my head, if I'm thinking of Ray Allen, Allen Iverson and Kobe Bryant in the same draft class, like, those three guys are pioneers at everything that they've done, especially guys like Allen Iverson and Ray Allen. Even like a guy like a, a Stoyakovic, who was an international sensation, a guy like a Doncic could look at that and you know say that Stoyakovic was one of was his motivation. You know, Stefan Marbury's another guy who's an undersized guard. Like even look at guys like uh, 
like Marcus Camby, like the, the just the, the defensive ability too. So I gotta, you know what, man? When it comes to like revolutionizing the game and like the importance, I think this draft might be number one. It's between this one and nine and oh uh, three for me. I'd say this one is uh, definitely deeper, just because we're just going through all the guys on the list. You mentioned them off; they're all like very impactful players everywhere they've been. So uh, I'll take ninety six. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. I'll go ninety six, uh, just be based on the depth and the careers everyone had, but. Number two, I still would lean more towards 84 just because of the amount of Hall of Famers that came out of it. Like you had Elijah Jordan, Barkley, Otis Thorpe, Robertson. Like you had some guys there that were legends and had those great careers. Like 03, you look at it, like that's number three for me just because you had like LeBron, Bosch, Wade, Melo, but three of them ended up joining together and forming a super team. So couldn't really have legacies on their own like that, aside from Wade maybe, but. That's the only reason why I kind of lean towards the older draft, but uh, the Vince Carter draft is another one that's interesting. Yeah, this one was good. 96, greatest draft of all time. Uh, That's another episode. It's episode 88. Getting closer to the 90th episode, so stick around for next week when we get to episode 89. Boom.